Coming up in this episode. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS. Is he dead or alive? I don't know how to say it any other way. Y'all keep asking me, so I try to keep up coming up with another way of saying it. I don't have a clue. That is the prevailing wisdom from everybody in the U.S. military. But there are a number of people who've actually spent years hunting Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and know a little bit about his ability to be elusive and to survive. One of them is Brett Velikovich. One of the first times I, I came uh, in contact with, with Baghdadi um, was actually when he was not the number one guy in the organization. Um, he was maybe four or five in the network, and we were trying to find him so that he could help take us to the number one and number two. Velikovich will talk about how Baghdadi has managed to survive, but the so-called caliphate will not survive. At least, that's the view of the U.S. military. So, what happens the day after? Betnam Bentalablu, senior Iran analyst with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, tells us what's next. Iran, Syria, and Russia will be surging, I think, more than the U.S. and more than U.S.-backed rebel forces to fill the vacuum, uh, restore the territorial integrity of the Assad regime, and by force retake the territory that belonged to ISIS. The status of Baghdadi, the war with ISIS, and what happens the day it ends, coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green, July 12th, 2017. It's not clear if Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead or alive. Army General Stephen Townsend, commander of the Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve, has been asked about it repeatedly, including earlier this week. I don't know how to say it any other way. Y'all keep asking me, so I try to keep up coming up with another way of saying it. I don't have a clue. Don't have a reason to believe he's alive. Don't have a reason to believe he's dead. I'm unable to confirm or deny whether where he is or whether he is alive or dead. Let me just say for the record, my fervent hope is it is the latter. But one person who's chased him for a number of years has some thoughts about how he's been able to maintain and stay on the run, avoiding capture. His name is Brett Velikovich. He's a former intelligence analyst with Delta Force. He's written a new book, and he's here to talk to us specifically about Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. So, Brett, thanks for being here. Tell me about the book. Sure. So my book, Drone Warrior, basically goes through and chronicles my time in the U.S. Army where I was surrounded by some of the best minds in the business of war who basically utilized the benefits of drone technology to hunt down terrorists. So what about your time in the Army? What was your rank? What did you do? What was your last assignment? How did you get there? Give us some insight into that. 
Sure. Yeah. So I was a staff sergeant. Um, I my specific role was intelligence analysis. When I joined the army shortly after September 11th, I felt like that was the best way I could give back. You know, I wasn't the green beret or the Navy seal guy kicking down the doors. I was, um, I wanted to help from the Intel side. So, so my job was actually to analyze the data that was coming in from the drone feeds or from, uh, information that we were getting from the field and then specifically put all that together to help uh, target uh, some of these guys in groups like the Islamic State of Iraq and or Al Qaeda in Iraq, um, I spent uh, multiple multiple deployments to Iraq, to Afghanistan. I spent uh, quite a bit of time in, in North Africa, and um, so I really got to see all the cesspools <laughs> during my time. You were a you worked with Delta Force, is that correct? I worked with a special operations task force. So I specifically worked um, with an organization that had um, members from the special operations community. So you hunted ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Tell me about that. Sure. So, you know, our job was to really go after some of the most dangerous people out there. Um, You know, we had just some incredible uh, soldiers around us. And so our job was to break apart these networks. during that time, uh, one of the first times I, I came uh, in contact with with Baghdadi um, was actually when he was not the number one guy in the organization. Um, he was maybe four or five in the network, and we were trying to find him so that he could help take us to the number one and number two. And I, I thought what was very interesting about him is he came out of prison, and he was just right back on the scene, like almost almost instantaneous, which is very rare for um, an, an Islamic State leader to come back on because. If they come out of prison, they tend to think that they've been corrupted somehow by uh, Western forces. But he came back in in a huge leadership role, which I found very interesting. Um, and so uh, we originally were trying to go after well, the— b- before, Sorry to interrupt, but before you go to the next point, uh, I just want to ask really quick on that. What, what did you learn from the fact that he was able to come right back out and get immediately plugged back in? Well, I think it goes to show um, how how cunning he is and how uh, people listen to to what he said what, what he says. I mean, one of the things that has always been a lure, uh, particularly to to be a, a, under his leadership, was the fact that he knew Islamic law uh, fairly fairly well enough to to corrupt it in a way that could get followers. He he was uh, he received a doctorate in Islamic studies from Baghdad, and so. He had this authority, unlike other fighters, where he could actually recite very specific verses and tie it tie it into, um, you know, this overall kind of um, Islamic Islamic principles. And so I think that was one of the biggest things. The other thing is he, he comes from a time that um, uh, a lot of Saddam era officers um, knew him pretty well. And. You know, we couldn't figure out exactly why that was. We weren't sure if he was this former like intelligence guy or if he just was just more of a just a charismatic leader. But he seemed to have all these friends within like old Saddam era intelligence circles. And so like like higher ranking guys, colonels, lieutenant colonels um, who are now still out there. Um, But so so I I think that kind of led to it. And then the fact that at at this point during the war, um, 2009, 2010 time frame, U.S. soldiers had just really done an incredible job of, of crushing down Islamic State of Iraq. And so there really were a lot of leaders in prison or dead. And so to fill those, there were a lot of leadership gaps to fill because U.S. soldiers had, had gone after them. And so 
long story short was that he was already he was put in a pretty high position of power yeah, yeah. Um, because of okay. that brett do you get the sense though that um based on what we know now that he was actually one one of the planners even while he was in prison of what we now know as isis I think so. I mean, look, the the sad thing about uh, what's going on now is, uh, you know, I'll never forget getting the call kind of towards the end of my deployment in Iraq where uh, I was asked to basically list out the top 50 guys that we had, the top 50 ISI guys that we had in prison, as long as state members, because the, the prime minister was going to release the rest of them and because the war was over. And I remember just thinking, like, how many soldiers like gave their lives to put these guys in prison? And now the same people that are out there running ISIS came from guys that that uh, that we had put in prison that were released and we had already got them. That's why you see it when you see these photos of like some of these ISIS leaders, you see them in like their jumpsuits from prison, you know. And so I do get the sense that he had uh, that he he somehow in prison was able to take on a, a, a leadership role there. And so that provided him with the credibility as well. Uh, to be able to come back on the scene. And then when the other guys got released, he brought them back in right away uh, because he spent quite a time, uh, quite a bit of time there. So when did you leave the military? When did you leave this, this, this job where you were hunting Baghdadi and, and others? So I left in 2010. Um, I spent eight years there, ended up getting out and uh, finishing my master's degree and looking to kind of find just like a lot of soldiers I think do when they leave the war zone, find a, find a new sense of purpose. And for me, that was really utilizing um, my knowledge of drones, utilize my knowledge um, to actually um, use the technology in an interesting way. And so now I spend my time basically um, trying to, to show how drones can create a positive impact on humanity and, and, and use, uh, be used for humanitarian operations. That's awesome. Um, looking back on the ISIS situation, um, talking about today, current the current situation, there's a report out today which seems to have more credibility than any report that I've seen in any recent uh, weeks or months about the uh, death of uh, Baghdadi. And I know you're not in anymore, but um, I'm interested in what you think, what you might have heard. For sure. I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm one of the few people that actually know um, quite a bit about him, just just not enough to know exactly where he is. But, um, you know, we our team spent spent a lot of time going after him. And I, I feel like I know how he thinks. And um, these reports are interesting. I got to say, I, the, the, what's really interesting to me is that, it you know, originally kind of came from the Russian side, right, that they had conducted this mortar attack, um, this barrage of artillery fire in Raqqa and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was part of the group of leaders that were killed. Um, I tend to to take any uh, idea that he has been killed with a grain of salt just because I understand very well how their disinformation campaign. But this new reporting is kind of relatively interesting uh, because it's coming from a second source. And so like that was my job was to was to kind of vet this information. And so as you start seeing more and more reports coming in and you realize just how the confusion that's going on over there and how hard it is to get information, um, you know, it's 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 tough to say. But I, I will tell you that the U.S. government, like they've got some pretty smart people and some pretty smart capabilities over there. And the one thing that I still have yet to see them do is confirm this information. And, and in my opinion, yeah. they should be able they should be able to do that. I could be wrong, but they have yet to confirm it. And I think that's what we have to wait on to make a, 
a full um, to to conclude to conclude uh, fully. Um, yeah, yeah. If he if he if he has been killed, uh, it's it's interesting. Uh, I you know I don't I think it'll be a huge blowback to the network. Um, I by no means it will it will end. Uh, the way that they're operating because it's very um, it's difficult to say just how much control he has over the day-to-day operations you know typically the leadership at that level they're providing strategic guidance and a lot of times they're not seen by most of the other members there because they they know that they are this figurehead uh, but likely uh, his minister of war will be uh, tapped to be the number two that's typically what happens uh, the Islamic State Minister of War goes up to be number one, or they could, um, you know, they could kind of take on this whole idea of, of um, you know, making people think that no one's in charge, and um, and maybe have this council, uh, which they've done before in the past when the leader has been killed. They've created this almost council of of leadership. Just think of it like a board of directors, uh, where where they collectively come together and make those decisions, and then decide from there eventually who will take over. But um, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, yeah. I, again, I take all the, a lot of the stuff with a grain of salt until okay. the U.S. Okay. government confirms. So when was the last time you saw Baghdadi? The last time we had um, a good idea that I know of, okay, that a lot of stuff has happened since I got out, that we had a good idea of where no, Baghdadi no, I mean, was, was. I mean, no, I mean, well, I'm, I'm assuming that you actually had a visual using through the drone scenario. Is that correct or am I mistaken about that? I personally did not. Um, I talk in the book about how another uh, team member of mine did oh, okay. um, when I had gotten, just as I had gotten out. Yeah. Uh, and he was very convinced that he had him located in a house. And because of the rules of war had changed, that it made it difficult. To, uh, would have, a raid that would have been conducted that same night um, took weeks to get approved. And uh, you know, I kind of talk about in the book, like why, why that was the case. But there was one point when we had, we had Baghdad, we literally missed Baghdadi when I, when I was out there by 30 minutes, the guys, yeah. uh, that conducted the raid were in a house and the, the person there was literally like holding a letter that Baghdadi had handed him. And they're like, you just missed him. He was just here. Hmm. And then, and then, uh, the story kind of talks about what we did with that letter. Um, but, yeah. uh, since then, like, he, the thing about him, though, is he knows he knows how the U.S. government operates. And this, I mean, is, this is what I'm getting at here. He he is not some ragtag hanger on or um, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you know, he knows how to persuade people to do things. But he also has been imprisoned by, you know, the U.S. at, at the U.S.'s uh, hand. I think he was at Abu Ghraib, right? And um, he has spent a lot of years figuring out how he wants to go back at the U.S. and studied the U.S. a lot. And uh, one of the things that some of your colleagues or who are actually still in have told me that since the Edward Snowden leaks, groups like ISIS have learned a lot about how the U.S. does what it does to track them. And he is probably very good at escaping uh, and uh, eluding. Um, what do you, go ahead. I think I think what's kept him is uh, what's kept him alive is his over paranoia. Um, in my opinion, think about just think about being on the run your mm-hmm. entire life yeah. and just not knowing necessarily like who is uh, you know providing information on your whereabouts or who out of the group might be a spy for the the Western government, and think about like. We were going after guys all around him every single day. Imagine you go to the same restaurant 
every single weekend with your same five friends. And after a while, one by one, each of them don't show up at that restaurant anymore because they've been captured, they've been killed in an operation. You start to have this paranoia unlike any other. And that's one of the things that drones you know, provide us and, 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 it, and it gets them scared. Well, I think his paranoia was what kept him alive because you, the fact is like so many people are looking for him and, and so many of the people around him were being taken off the battlefield by U.S. soldiers that like he he figured out a way to, to survive all that. And I got to tell you, like as evil and as horrendous and barbaric as a person as this person is like that takes a that takes a smart mind to be able to run to get away from U.S. soldiers and like all the capabilities that are, that are out there. And so uh, I, I even call him in the book one of the smartest terrorists I ever hunted. And that's not to like prop him up as being, the, you know, this great person like make no mistake. He's one of the most evil human beings on the planet. But I just know, I just know the, the way that, uh, how many people were looking for him and how many, uh, how, how close we got to him and he was still able to slip away. And, um, it's one of those things that still kind of haunts me to this day is like, we could have, you know, we had just known, um, beforehand that, um, it would, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, you wish that that before we left Iraq, that we would have got him before all this came to fruition. But we saw back then how bad he was. And yeah, we we yeah. knew, no doubt, he will go down in history, and not in a good way, for being one of the most brutal, notorious, hate-filled individuals that ever walked the planet. But thank you for bringing your perspective to us from your book, Drone Warrior: An Elite Soldier's Inside Account of the Hunt for. America's Most Dangerous Enemies. Brett Velikovich, thank you again. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Whatever the situation is with Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, whether he's alive or dead, the U.S. military, all of its partners, and arguably even some inside ISIS agree there's going to come a day when the caliphate collapses completely. What to do the day after? We talk with Betnam Ben Talablu about that. Behnam is a senior Iran analyst at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies in Washington. Okay, Mr. Talablu, um, the situation in Syria is this, I believe. The so-called caliphate is crumbling, and there appears to be a very significant scramble for power, for the day after ISIS falls or, you know, ostensibly in the time after that, that group is no longer legitimate, certainly in Raqqa. Give me your view on the importance of what happens then to Iran and Syria and Russia uh, as it relates to the U.S.? Sure. And I think that's absolutely critical because in the aftermath of a a fall, if you will, of the ISIS capital of Raqqa, those three actors, Iran, Syria, and Russia, will be surging, I think, more than the U.S. and more than U.S.-backed rebel forces to fill the vacuum, uh, restore the territorial integrity of the Assad regime, and by force retake the territory that belonged to ISIS. Um, and this is done basically by hook and by crook. Um, they've basically created this argument that exists both in the West and in Syria that if it's not the Assad regime, it's ISIS or it's a terrorist group akin to ISIS. Uh, they've persecuted and fought the moderate rebels successfully. You recall the siege of Aleppo. Mm-hmm. Um, and when when the Assad regime was on the defensive and it looked like he was only going to hold on to a Western sliver, um, Iran, Hezbollah, and ultimately the Russian Federation through air power uh, bailed out the Assad regime. And basically those three forces together 
Iran, Syria, Russia will surge to fill a vacuum. Um, and we're going to see that should Raqqa fall. Let's talk specifically about what's at stake for, for, for the Assad regime broadly. Uh, when, when, when Raqqa falls, and it by all accounts appears to be in the cards to fall, what happens to the Syrian regime at that point, assuming that uh, the moderate rebels are still viable and still around? Well, I think the first fight that the Syrian regime within itself knows uh, it must have is the fight for survival. And this basically means when, whenever Raqqa falls and whenever the Islamic State is inevitably defeated, uh, the Syrian regime, I think, will know and it will have to make a political calculation that it will now be more overtly tied to Iran and more overtly tied to Russia than it ever was before in the entire life of Bashar al-Assad or his father, Hafez. So that overt linkage to Tehran and to Moscow will be solidified and it'll be seen more as a lifeline. And I think Tehran and, and Moscow will act more as overlords of Assad, restraining um, whatever kind of independence he may have, even though he'll be sovereign in certain areas mm -hmm. in Syria. Again, assuming Raqqa falls and the Islamic State is wrapped up. Mm -hmm. Once that, that debate is had and, and the Syrian, what's left of the Syrian regime, I think, is comfortable, then I think they'll be able to prosecute uh, the war against what's left of the, as you said, the moderate rebels. What is there? Is there a possibility that this could go another way? That the 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 rebels and those that are aligned with them could could um, essentially present a different power structure uh, that could contest the Assad regime uh, after ISIS falls, or would that be uh, contingent upon U.S. help? I think there's a lot of variables on the rebel side that are still in the air. Um, particularly, I know that I'm not the best person to speak with about the intricacies of the DOD-backed rebels, for instance, or the rebels that have received funding from, let's say, Jordanian intel, how coordinated these two different groups are with one another. Um, and so that variable has puzzled, I think, many analysts. And the question is, can these guys rush to fill the vacuum in a, in a, in a post-ISIS Syria? Many kind of have resigned themselves, at least in the West, to believing that the Assad regime, or if not Assad, the Ba'athist regime will linger on in some capacity, be it a full state or a statelet. And then the question will become, is it, a, is it safe zones ultimately in Syria, which I have a colleague, John Capello, who's written extensively and published extensively and spoken extensively on the concept of safe zones in Syria? Or will it be like a rush to take the entire territory? Um, as it stands now, my bottom of the envelope gut assessment is that the rebels can't do it on their own and are reliant on U.S. support greatly. That being said, for the U.S., it's a question of political will. Like you're seeing with the shoot down of the drone now, you're seeing with um, uh, increased airstrikes in Syria and, and in Iraq. I think today the, the Iraq today or yesterday the Iraq ones outpaced the Syria ones. Um, there is this newfound will. And I think that adversarial axis, Iran, Syria, Russia, is seeing that there is this newfound will to at least in certain areas of Syria create these deconfliction zones, which ultimately one could call later on safe zones, but to, to push back and to not let the inevitable become the inevitable. Uh, it'll take great political will to sustain and great momentum to sustain and great military capability to sustain, but this could be the beginning of a shift in that dynamic. What uh, what's at stake for for Iran in this? Um, it seems like they've got a lot more at stake uh, than almost anybody else except Syria. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. Iran has invested 
you know, I have this triple M line, money, men, munitions in the fight hmm. to save the Assad regime. Um, and it's telling because Iran is engaged in lots and lots of low intensity conflicts around the region and some would say around the world. You know, it sponsored terrorism in South America, Eastern uh, Central Europe. Um, but Syria is, is a particular theater of interest because it was Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafez, who supported Iran during the Iran-Iraq war. He was one of two Arab countries to formally support Iran during that war. Um, and then since the war, Syria has been the land bridge to, Hez to Lebanon, which houses Hezbollah, that is the most successful case of the export of the uh, Islamic revolution. So Syria has played an instrumental role in the furthering of the Islamic Republic's strategy and ideology in the region. It's prevented Iran to create this second strike capability through the form of low-intensity conflict uh, via Hezbollah to Israel. It's prevented. It's pre presented Iran with a state partner in the region. You know, Iran has lots of non-state actors. It's only sole state partner, really, uh, until the U.S. toppled Saddam's Iraq was Syria. Uh, so Iran has reputation on the line, money on the line, long-standing ties on the line, uh, and its credibility on the line. And that's why you saw people like former President Hashemi Rafsanjani, who you know many in the West I think falsely called him a moderate or or whatnot, but. I think back in 2012 or 2013, he said on his website, and that page has now been taken down, that if the chain from Syria to here is cut, bad things will happen. And that Iranian officials often frame their involvement in Iraq, and particularly Syria, as a fight to defend Iran itself. They say that we don't we need to fight on the offensive, that the best defense is the offense, and that the theater uh, of conflict for this is, was, and will remain Syria. You know, um, as, as I look at this, um, Russia's got a heck of a lot at stake, too, it seems. Um, so, you know, w what I'm wondering here is, are we at that point where Russia has to start thinking about Tartus? Um, I mean, what we've seen in the last few days is it's not illogical behavior, but it's certainly behavior that one might think of as desperate in some 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 regards, because Russia, in the last few days, has claimed that it's killed Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, only to have to come out and say, "Well, maybe not. We don't have any proof of that." And then, uh, after the Syrian regime um, aircraft strayed into an area that it had agreed. It wouldn't stray into and ended up getting shot down and then another drone being shot down by the U.S. military. You know, Russia claimed that it was going to cut off the deconfliction line with the U.S., but it, it never really did. How, how far down the road does Russia have to start thinking about the port of Tartus? You know, this, uh, this might seem out of line or out of place, but... Have you ever seen the movie Hunt for Red October? I have. <laughs> uh, I'm not. I'm not a Russia scholar by by any means. I, I have some friends who are. You know, just because of my passing foreign policy interest, I get to study Russia. Yeah. But because of my Middle East stuff, you know, Russia is basically a newfound player in the region. But there's this line from Hunt for Red October, uh, where Fred Dalton, uh, he says, and you know, this is the off the record part. Yes. <laughs> he says the Russians don't take a dump without a plan. You know, so I'm, I'm not <laughs> just between us, you know, I, I'm not cognizant of what the ultimate Russian plan is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I just I just thought that that framing <laughs> would, would be useful for you and your story, that there has to be a larger Russian plan. What, what, what do you think? Do you or do you think they what do you think their plan might be? 
Russia. I think Russia is the definition of, of again, I'm not a Russian expert by any stretch of the imagination, but Russia strikes me as a quite self-interested and opportunistic actor in many regions of the world, but particularly the Middle East. It has a military base on, uh, you know, in one of the warmer, warmer parts of the world, that, that naval base in Tartus you mentioned. Um, I think it, it would like to keep that base at any cost. You know, if you asked me maybe nine months ago, uh, about nine months ago, Vietnam, is there a strategy where we can divide Russia from Iran or divide Russia from the Assad regime and say, Russia, keep the base, um, but kind of ditch the regime? That may have been a diplomatic possibility, again, contingent on facts on the ground in, in Syria. But I think Russia, like many other actors in the region, are emboldened. And only recently are they rushing into uh, this new U.S. Uh, kind of uh, resolve in Russia as evidenced by mm-hmm. the desire to maintain the deconfliction zone. Benham Ben Talablu, senior Iran analyst at the Washington-based Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Thanks for your time, Benham. Thanks a lot, JJ. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, whether it's terrorism, anarchists, cyber criminals, nation states, intelligence, or the U.S.'s own counterintelligence drama that's playing out in the Congress. Join us on Target USA for the latest. Thank you for checking in with us. Follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. You can also let me know what you think at jgreen at WTOP.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at WTOP.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hi, I'm Tavis Smiley. You may know me from my PBS talk show. I'm excited to tell you that I have a brand new podcast that you can hear on podcastone.com starting this July. I'll discuss the latest in politics, sports, music, and much more with big thinkers, artists, and celebrities. I'll also share my own opinions and answer some of your questions. So join the conversation this July on the Tavis Smiley podcast coming to podcastone.com, the Podcast One app, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts.